Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. All right, everyone. Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. We are here today to talk about uh, one topic and one topic only, and that is what is happening uh, in Ukraine right now. Of course, just saying it that way, that there are so many other aspects to this conflict, um, significant historical, economic, social con- you know, concepts that, um, that make up what we're going to talk about today, you know, as, as, as with almost any American involved geopolitical issue. It is, it is, it's not linear. It's not always easy to understand, but we hope we can contribute today to the conversation a little bit and, um, and, and talk about what's on our minds as far as what's, what's, what's happening in Ukraine. So, um, I think for today, we're going to try to focus on what, what has been the, the Western response and how the, um, the American involvement that leads up to what we're dealing with right now. Um, I have an excellent excerpt here from a piece re- earlier this week from Aaron Mate. Um, quote, in the United States, the Russian invasion is widely portrayed as a campaign by Putin to colonize Ukraine and subvert its effort to join the European Union. If that is indeed Putin's goal now, then he is only doing so after a years-long effort led by the U.S. to force the deeply divided country into the Western orbit. By its own accounting, the U.S. has spent $5 billion on this crusade since 1991, complemented with tens of millions more from the European Union. The U.S. agenda was made plain in September 2013 when Carl Gershman, head of the CIA-tied National Endowment for Democracy, declared that, quote-unquote, Ukraine is the biggest prize. If Ukraine could be pulled into the U.S.-led order, Gershman explained, quote, Putin may find himself on the losing end, not just in the near abroad, but within Russia itself, end quote. In short, in Washington's eyes, regime change in Kyiv could redound to Moscow as well. An opportunity to claim the prize arrived two months later with the outbreak of Ukraine's maiden protests. The maiden is commonly described in the U.S. as a democratic revolution. That is a fair term for its initial weeks when tens of thousands of Ukrainians gathered in Kyiv's maiden square to protest rampant government corruption and support European integration. But those protests were soon co-opted by Ukraine's far-right forces who turned a people's movement into a violent campaign for regime change. Maiden culminated in what George Freeman, head of the U.S. intelligence-tied firm Stratfor, described as, quote, the most blatant coup in history, end quote. The spark for the Maiden protest was a decision by President Viktor Yanukovych to back out of a trade deal offered by the European Union. The convening narrative is that Yanukovych was bullied by his chief patron in Moscow, 
In reality, Yanukovych was hoping to develop ties with Europe and, quote, cajoled and bullied anyone who pushed Ukraine to have closer ties to Russia, Reuters reported at the time. But the Ukrainian president got cold feet once he read the U EU's deal's fine print. Ukraine would not only have to curb its deep cultural and economic ties to Russia, but accept harsh austerity measures such as, quote, increasing the retirement age and freezing pensions and wages, end quote. Far from improving the lives of average Ukrainians, these demands only would have ensured deprivation and Yanukovych's political demise. Russia capitalized on Yanukovych's jitters by offering a more generous package of $15 billion and threatening to withhold payments if the EU terms are accepted. Contrary to su subsequent Western narratives, Russia did not demand a, quote, a commitment to join the Russian-led customs union or any other evident quid pro quo, according to the New York Times. Unlike its Western counterpart, Russia also did not demand that Ukraine abandon its European ambitions. Yanukovych, the Times reported in December 2013, quote, has insisted that Ukraine would ultimately move toward Europe and even consider signing the accords at a later date, end quote. But there was one obstacle. Quote, a senior EU official has said those discussions have been cut out, end quote. By that point, rather than help broker a compromise, the U.S. swung its weight behind far-right opposition figures who had taken command of the maiden. As far-right groups occupied government buildings across Ukraine, Washington's bipartisan cold warriors swept in to claim the prize. John McCain and Chris Murphy visited the central protest encampment in Kyiv and stood beside Oled Tienbach, leader of the far-right Svoboda Party. Tienbach had once urged his supporters to fight the, quote, Moscovite Jewish mafia running Ukraine. Quote, Ukraine will make Europe better and Europe will make Ukraine better, McCain promised the crowd. Giving away the game, Murphy told CNN that the senator's mission was, quote, to bring about a peaceful transition here, end quote. The senators were joined in key by senior State Department official Victoria Newland, who now occupies a similar position under Biden. On February 4th, an intercepted phone call, presumably recorded and released by Russian or Ukrainian intelligence, exposed Newland's plan for bringing the transition about. Speaking to Jeffrey Pyatt, Pyatt the, Ukrainian the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Newland laid out how the U.S. would back a new Ukrainian government, fronted by maiden leaders and handpicked by Washington. The State Department responded to the leak by dismissing it as, quote, Russian tradecraft. End quote. So I want I wanted to, you know, kind of lead in with some of that that background on what how the United States came to this place. And that's not the entire story, certainly, but it is uh, much of the key factors that we're dealing with within the last 20, 25 years. Um, guys, what, what are your impressions of that? What do you uh, what uh, what comes to mind after hearing all that history? So yeah, so uh, I like the uh, the some of the context that uh, the, uh, Mate puts there. Right? He brings it. He brings back the conflict not to yesterday or like six days ago or eight days ago. He brings the conflict back to 2014, uh, which most people most people don't realize that in 2013 there were no conflict um, between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, 
You know, as a matter of fact, Ukraine was a a neutral country. Ukraine was actually uh, in pretty much doing commerce with both the EU and and Russia. Being Russia's border, you know, it's more you know Russia is a natural uh, trading partner for Ukraine, being that it's in their border. Um, the conflict started after 2014 February, which is the, that's when the Maidan happened, right? Um, and the thing about uh, President uh, that was overthrown, uh, he was president before. He was president before back in 2005, you know, and he had a corruption scandals there. He has corruption scandals here again. But however, what, what Mate uh, uh, pointed out there, he was given an ultimatum. Is given an ultimatum between um, either EU and Russia by the EU, right? Not by Russia, by the EU. So he naturally, and the, like you said, the fine print, um, it would have been in the best interest of Ukraine than to side with Russia than, than with the what the EU was offering. Hence, uh, you saw the Maidan protests. Hence, that opened up space for the reactionaries within Ukraine. Um, Ukraine has a long history of reactionary uh, has a history of, of you know, far right fascist groups, um, Ukraine, uh, Western Ukraine took part in the invasion of, of Russia, of Soviet Union during Operation Barbarossa. Um, you know, when uh, when uh, Germans invaded Russia, uh, the Soviet Union. Um, so yeah, there is this trouble. There is this trouble uh, uh, mixture. There's this trouble uh, um, um, past. But what I'm trying to say is that because of the Maidan, it opened up space for the fascist elements within Ukraine to enter and pressure uh, the president Yanukovych uh, to uh, um, to to step down. He he flew eventually. He flew he flew to uh, to Russia, um, and then that opened up space for uh, the coup government, which that's where we are right now from the coup government and now. Yeah, I think it's interesting that the same issue that we saw in Egypt in 2011 rears its head in 2014 where the right-wing government or the right-wing organizations are the ones that co-opt the democratic like reasoning so um but yeah it's it's always great to get history to get more understanding about why people like where we're at and how we got here because context is everything when it comes to geopolitics but it's something that is lost a lot when we talk about it in the media, so. And, and, and to add to that, when we talk about it in the media, because because um, what's happening is they're weaponizing, they're weaponizing compassion here. They're weaponizing, um, they're weaponizing uh, uh, emotions here, right? I mean, we've been we bombarded with with you know, uh, Russophobia and 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 anti-Putin. Um, demonization, you know, point demonization for the last, uh, probably the last 15 to 20 years, you know, um, particularly it became really, really, really obscene, it became really, really evident during the Trump years where, 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 you know, where particularly people, more liberal people, more people into the left and whatnot because of their reaction to Trump, you know, that the deep hatred started, the seed that was planted years before, you know, pretty much started flourishing during the Trump era. Uh, so there was, so there was that site there, there was already the, the, the fertile, the fertile terrain there to exploit um, what we're seeing today, like you said, Keenan, with the media to exploit uh, and weaponize compassion and, and emotions against Russia um, to take this position, like uh, Henry mentioned earlier, of a pro-NATO 
stance, you know, a pro-NATO support. Um, we're hearing, we're hearing, we have just had a protest uh, this weekend here in San Antonio um, where, you know, where you have, um, where you have, you know, elements of people out there, you know, had a lot of Ukrainian flags out there and the people were calling instead of de-escalation and peace, where they were calling it for NATO to do something about it, you know, to to increase, to escalate, rather de-escalate. And we're seeing that across the United States in a lot of these um, pro-Ukraine, uh, um, uh, you know, solidarity uh, protests. Which is frustrating because we can't do that. Like, I mean, <laughs> us going to war with Russia would be like so dangerous. And I wish people would try to talk about it with more nuance like we attempt to do because we can't just say, oh, this is terrible, like, let's go do something. Even something like a no-fly zone or, like, doing what we did in Libya, you know, like, where we're, we're, like, limited strikes or whatever, like, that would still, like, there's just too much chance for something terrible to happen where we would end up having to fight Russia. And, like, if that happened, it would not be good for the world. And because Putin has plans, he has his goals, and he's trying to make, he's trying to, take the resources of, of Ukraine for himself. And if he does continue, uh, he'll probably try to take the Latvian countries like Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania next if he's successful here. But the nice thing is that he hasn't been successful so far, but that's mostly a logistical thing because he thought that he could do like what we did in Iraq and just come in real quickly. But logistically, he's not there yet. And... So that's like the one good thing that I think is happening is that there has been a lot of like his troops have been bogged down because they don't have the ability to move as quickly as they thought they were going to. What do you guys think about the the ongoing media uh, bullet point describing what's happening in Ukraine now as significantly and uniquely worse than what has been happening in the Middle East What is over the last 20, 25 years, um, you know, that the, just, just an example that I, I had thought of the, um, you know, that not how 9-11 is treated as, uh, as uniquely horrific to us. You know, there's this very special significance to it, but we're not, we're not actively looking at what's happening on the ground. Um, we just are trying to look at what our own our own uh, culpability is. Um, also mentions about the you know the 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 largest refugee crisis in Europe since World War II. And I'm like, well, I guess that's true if you don't count all the other millions of people that have been fleeing um, U.S. imperialism from the Middle East, from uh, from uh, Asia, in some places as well. Um, and also is is the um, now that we're, we're we're at a point where we are between sanctions and between actions by the EU that we are essentially crushing, um, we're crushing their economy. We're crushing the Russian economy. The average Russian person, you know, the the crash of the ruble, um, you know, the, the, these and again, these are all all you know different weapons that we use in war for at, at different points without discussing what the real life on the ground consequences are you know will this exacerbate hunger in in russia 
um, you know, what is, you know, what is being done in that way? I mean, we're sending all kinds of weapons. There was a article that talked about we had our already sent like 19,000 stingers or, or whatever, whatever weapon, weapon system happens to be, which I, I think is a little, a little far-fetched. And so did the, the guy in the article that had mentioned it. It just it, it doesn't make sense that it would have happened that fast. But if you're actually considering that we have had special operations guys doing training of different kinds in Ukraine for years, that we have been arming them different times um, for years. Um, so, uh, Giovanni, we had just we were just discussing about the uh, what sanctions have done to the Russian economy, what the average Russian worker and citizen is dealing with this this weapon of war that we use against. Uh, almost everyone we go to war with and some that we don't like the how we have exacerbated hunger in places like Yemen and Venezuela along with uh medicine shortages and such and Afghanistan but yeah like sanctions always hurt the people who need the most help the most and unless there's unless they're centrally targeted at like specific people and specific things like if we wanted to go after all of the money that the Russian oligarchs have here like freeze all their assets here, like that would actually hurt them. You know, like take away their apartments, take away their yachts that are docked at our ports, like take away the stuff that is in the power structure that those folks care about more because they're the only people that Putin sort of listens to if he listens to anybody. But it just sucks that like uh, one of my favorite writers put it as like, uh, think of the Russian economy like a building where the sanctions will blow out all the windows and the people on the inside will be cold and hungry, but the structure is still going to be intact because Russia is a creditor nation. So we like, we are in this sick triangle with China and Russia where China buys all the materials from Russia to make what we buy here. Mm -hmm. So like we have, it's like the new transatlantic trade agreement. It's like, this is how, we get stuff done. And so if we really wanted to unpack how to actually deal with the power structure in place, we should be attacking that. Like, But unfortunately, when we do blanket sanctions or we do them in this general way, because it's less dangerous than, you know, a- actively attacking them, it sucks because it always hurts the people that need it the most. Well, sanctions is a weapon of war. Uh, it's a it's a form of siege siege warfare, and it is intended it is intended to create misery among the uh, among people. Uh, that's that's the that's the intention of it, right? Um, because you know that you know that's rational. But going on that, um, Michael Hudson um, just wrote an article on about it about the sanction. Because what's happening is that that this sanction was meant to to pretty much decouple. Uh, Russia from the Western economy, right? But if you've been watching what's been happening throughout the last, throughout the year, throughout, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, right? Uh, there's been this economic shift going on around the world. You have, you have China, for example, um, it's, a, it's, it's considered the second, the second, uh, 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 you know, largest economy or the second most dynamic or the most, you know, economic power in the world, right? And there is estimates within within the State Department, there's estimates between the Atlantic Council that by uh, 2035, uh, China's gonna surpass uh, United States as economic power, right? So this is the whole, this, this is whole dynamic going on. Um, if you saw how 
how the the Trump the 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 Trump administration after you know after the the reaction that that his election got and you, and you saw all the uh, um, you know how you know how Russia stole the elections and and he's in bed with with Putin and et cetera et cetera et cetera right what Trump did was actually right was reacted to that was reacted to that and actually enacted sanctions on Russia right uh, back then right. Uh, and actually, and actually, continue to you know to move, um, you know, take hostile, aggressive actions towards Russia, like pretty much tearing up the INF treaty, for example, right? Which is something that that is vital, you know, for Russia for their security, right? Um, so what what's been happening for the last you know you know six seven years or so, right? Russia actually has been being has been pushed towards the east, whereas if after the the at the dissolution of the Soviet Union, Russia was trying to enter the West, was trying to be part of the EU, was trying to be part of NATO, et cetera, and just being rebuffed, right? But because of the reaction to Trump and everything like that, um, and and going away from what Obama was trying to do, Obama was trying to pivot, when, when his pivot with Asia, what he was trying to do, he was trying to put pressure on China. The TTP that he was trying to push in, in East Asia, right? The, uh, the Trans-Pacific, uh, um, partnership that he was trying was meant to isolate China, right? One of the first things that Trump did was pretty much tear up the TTP. And because he was put so much pressure by the Democrats and liberals, et cetera, right? And he wanted to show that he wasn't bought and, you know, by Russia and everything, he started to put sanctions on Russia, started pushing actually Russia and China together, right? Uh, so now Russia's being, has been for the last couple of years, right, has been closer and closer to China while China has been growing, growing, growing. When that what that's been happening is that United States is becoming less of uh, of the only game in town now. Now China right now is you know more and more countries are going towards China because the United States uses the dollar because the dollar is the global currency as a weapon with sanctions and everything like that. You, you talked about Venezuela, Iran, um, you know you know North Korea, uh, Zimbabwe, Eritrea, uh, you know all these countries. There's like twenty. There's like thirty nine countries being sanctioned right now, right? By the United States. So what these countries have been doing, they've been they've been gravitating towards China. You know, and that's the same thing as Russia's been doing, been gravitating towards China, right? So sanction decoupling Russia from Europe, what it does is it continues the the the, the progression towards China, right? Um, and the de-dollarization of the economy, because right now the, the dollar is is a current of, of you know the global current, but now because the dollar is weaponized the way it has been for the last decade, you know, decade, 20 decades or whatnot, you know, a couple, few decades or so, right? You know, more and more countries are trying to move away from the dollar to do business, right? That's what's happening, right? So what's, what, what that means for Europe, what, what that means for Europe is, right, because Germany, for example, uses about 40% of its oil from Russia. Now that Germany has been, Russia is still flowing, by the way, still flowing oil into Europe because they can't cut off Europe because that's their closest market. And what the United States is trying to, to make Europe do instead of buying oil from, the, from, from Russia to buy oil from the United States. And that's where you go into the pipelines here in the United States, you know, and, and you know, the liquid gas that is being sent over there and whatnot. Um, Europe have, have already been decoupled from Iran. You know, by sanctioning Iran, pretty much you cut off the Iran source. And now you're cutting off Europe from the from the uh, the Russian source. So what Michael Hudson is saying is that the sanctions uh, not only is meant to is not only meant to to put punish Russia, but it's also meant to consolidate power 
of Western Europe around the United States orbit. While this move, while this 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 world transition into a multipolar world, you know, going from a unipolar world to a multipolar world, which is that seems to be what's happening right now. So I, I wanted to take some time and talk a little bit about um, the nature of what um, some of our our forces that are actually in Ukraine are, are doing and some have been for quite a number of years. There's a I'm not sure how many personnel it is. I would imagine they number in in the low hundreds, but um, special forces teams training Ukrainian forces um, for a, a variety of things. And Giovanni, you um, um Part of your time in the army, you had a really unique experience that you were a instructor at the School of the Americas, and I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit on the 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 mindset, the the ideas that you know were being taught there, and and what what ultimately that's about. So, the School of the Americas today is called WinSec, the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation. That changed around 2001, that name, 2001-2002. But it was originally uh, established in 1946 in Panama, in the, in the canal, in the canal zone in Panama. Um, it was right after the, uh, the end of the Second World War. And pretty much what it was, the intention is to contain the spread of socialism and communism in, within the Americas. Um, that was that was the intention. That was the role of the the uh, um, the School of the Americas, right? So throughout throughout the decades, uh, Latin American um, you know soldiers and 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 uh, um, officers and whatnot they were they were rotated through, trained in this in this institution, right? And they were pretty much uh, the orientation of the institution was you know uh, to combat socialism in in Latin America. Right. Uh, after the after the treaty with the Panamanian government ended around um, 1977 uh, with the canal, and it was meant to be turned over. The the treaty was started, you know, to turn over the uh, the canal over to the Panamanians, which uh, completed in the 1990s. Uh, the transition. The School of Americas then moved to uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, around that time. Right. Um, right. Probably around the 80s or so. Right. And then establishes there. Um, and then in 2002 or 2001, 2002, after, you know, the, the end of the Cold War, uh, the solution of the Soviet Union, then the, then the rhetoric shifted from, from fighting socialism and communism to um, the drug war. That's when it shifted to the drug war. And so that's what the, the, the shift of the training was. Um, but going back to to when it was when it was in Panama since versus when it was in the United States in Panama because it was overseas just like Guantanamo Bay today uh, it was like out of sight and out of mind for most Americans so you didn't know really what was going on there you know um, and they were training in all kinds of tactics you know to fight you know you know. Uh, so, you know, left-wing insurgencies in Latin America, sympathizers to, you know, to left-wing to left -wing politics. Uh, you know, they were taught in different, you know, techniques, you know, to fight this insurgency. Um, you know, pretty much what it was is to stomp down any 
any evidence or any any uh, uh, remnants of, of socialism and communism within Latin America. So as a result, you get all these reactionary governments, you get all these, uh, you know, right-wing uh, fascistics, you know, go Latin America, in, in, in Argentina, in Brazil, in Chile, in Guatemala, in El Salvador, in, in uh, Honduras, um, in the Dominican Republic, you know, so you get all these right-wing, extreme, extreme right-wing governments in, uh, uh, in Latin America using all kinds of violence to safeguard their country from, from socialism, particularly with the Cuban Revolution. That's when it really intensified more uh, this anti-communist, anti-socialist uh, uh, sentiment and the aggression and the violence, you know, also updated um, because of that, because of the reaction to the Cuban Revolution. And this is, NATO is a similar story as well with the, uh, uh, the School of the Americas, by the way. We get asked often what people can do to help support the podcast. One very powerful way is to help us grow and reach more people is to leave us a review. You can do that on iTunes, which is the best place to leave a review. iTunes does reach the most people these days. The next best place is Facebook. Go to our Fortress on a Hill Facebook page and look for the reviews tab. And finally, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping us for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 or more a month will be mentioned here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 or a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us keep going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out these honorary producers, and they are Fahim Shirazi, James O'Barr, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Janet Hansen, Tristan Oliver, Daniel Fleming, Michael Caron, Zach H., Ren Jacob, Howard Reynolds. Why I Am Anti-War Podcast, Korgoth, Rick Coffee, and the Status Quo Podcast. You are all the engine that helps us power the podcast. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me slash fortress on a hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt for some great fortress merch. There's t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, and a whole lot more. And now let's get back to the podcast. So... I would, you know, I would, I would imagine that the, that for whatever, for whatever those guys are being taught that are actually in Ukraine right now, that, you know, we talk about, you know, providing, providing, you know, insurgent forces, you know, whatever it is, training weapons, et cetera, um, that it's going to include a, a huge dose of Russia phobia. Mm -hmm. of anti uh, opinions that are not within line in terms of NATO and the West. Um, of course, it's going to demonize leftists of, of, of different stripes, communist socialists, um, anarchists. Um, one thing that's happening uh, right now that I wanted, wanted to bring up, and it, 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 uh, it kind of deals with this a little bit, is that, that Ukraine has barred all men ages 18 to, to 60 from leaving the country. And while that 
in in a in a Western imperialist sense, that kind of makes sense in terms of they want to be able to create. They want to be able to conscript uh, more forces into their into their military. They don't want to voluntarily allow those people to leave. But it's um, that the that particular policy it violates at least three provisions of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The Article Thirteen states everyone has the right to leave any country, including his own. Article 9 states no one will be subjected to arbitrary arrest or detention. Um, Article 7 states all are equal before the law and are entitled without any discrimination to equal protection of the law. Um, and so, you know, we're in terms of what, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing, I don't know about insurgency. I don't want to, you know, in, in terms of what the strength in numbers and what people are actually be going to be doing, but it is a very safe bet that the American forces that are there doing things are teaching these kind of techniques to the people that they're dealing with there and, and the relationships they establish because wherever soldiers go, we meet other soldiers, we create relationships, we send emails and it's going to further implicate, um, the, the, uh, the ideas, the theories of, of Western imperialism in that way, because they want to know those people, you know, that the, the, the American super soldiers myth that we, we've created so much, uh, so much space to to continue to exist that other militaries other people they want they want to see that they want to see what what you know what does is the real super soldier idea and it's it's very very different than you would expect and they're teaching these are the kind of things that they're uh, that they're teaching yeah let me let me let me add to that if, if you may if, if you want to go Keegan I'm gonna give you a quick time uh timeline right so uh and in the 1950s, for example, you mentioned insurgencies. In the 1950s um, and, and into the 60s, uh, there was this project called um, Project um, Aerodynamic. It was, it was a CIA project, Aerodynamic. And, it was, and what it was, what it was is a project that uh, was to pretty much infiltrated the, the uh, Ukrainian diaspora. In, in the United States, in, in Europe, in Western Europe, et cetera, et cetera, right? Infiltrated their, their, their communal spaces, infiltrated their, uh, their you, know, you know, different organizations and whatnot. And, and, the, and the intention was to create this, to cultivate this animosity towards to the Ukraine SSR, right? And at the same time, was, it was meant also to, to cultivate a resistance with, within uh, by the connection with the diaspora within the, the Ukrainian, between Ukraine and SSR, right? Ukraine SSR was the Ukraine, uh, part of the Ukraine uh, socialist uh, bloc. So, uh, so this project was going on, this project was going on from the, you know, from the 50s, a lot of money was funneled into that, right? It was trying to cultivate this, this uh, insurgency within uh, Ukraine because it was thought to, to create this scenario where you know to pretty much bleed the uh, the Ukrainian uh, communists and also to you know to to spill over into 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 communist Russia, right? That was that was the idea behind it. Um, fast forward to 2008. 2008, uh, Lavrov, Lavrov, the uh, the uh, minister uh, in Russia, you know, for relations, right? He met with the with the uh, the American ambassador. And that was in 2008, and that's that's in the, came out from leaked documents, WikiLeaks, and so forth. And where he was talking about if the United States continue 
to keep funneling weapons inside Ukraine, keep bolstering Ukraine up, um, keep, you know, uh, hinting, enticing Ukraine, hinting that Ukraine will join NATO, et cetera, right? You know, this is a scenario that could happen. You know, uh, it, will, it will create a security concern for us. Uh, then we will react. And, and, and while us reacting, this is what will happen inside Ukraine. Ukraine can be torn apart into two. It will be West Ukraine and East Ukraine. East Ukraine are, is a part of Ukraine that are more uh, Russian, ethnic Russians, whereas West Ukraine are more, you know, are, are ethnic Ukrainians, right? And there are some other people as well, like, like the Roma, the Moldovans, et cetera, et cetera, right? Different other ethnic groups inside Ukraine. So that was back in 2008. If you recall in 2009, uh, Washington was also, you know, enticing and pretty much encouraging Georgia. Georgia also with the promise of, of them joining NATO as well. And Russia did an incursion there as well. It was a quick incursion that the, 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 Jordan Ar the Georgian army, Georgia, the country, you know, pretty much, uh, pretty much couldn't, you know, couldn't withstand the pressure and it pretty much fell, fell apart. And Russia pretty much withdrew after that, right? And that was the end you heard about Rodney. Georgia. You didn't hear about Georgia since. Uh, but lo location-wise, Georgia's a little bit inward uh, Asia, you know, the Eurasian area, uh, whereas Ukraine borders with Poland. And in Poland, there's a huge contingency of, 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 of U.S. trainers in, in Poland, right? And it's other, other countries, right? So a lot of these, you know, you keep hearing these, uh, um, you know, you keep hearing about the, the people fleeing, the, you keep hearing about uh, refugees going into Poland. That's where they're going. They're going to the Colorado Poland, right? But you don't hear about also their people fleeing the other direction as well. There's also people fleeing into Russia as well. But you don't hear that part because that's not part of the narrative. The narrative is they're getting away from Russia, not going into Russia. Does that make sense? <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, so, so, yeah. So, so fast forward to, to recently, to 2014. Yasha, I don't know if you guys ever heard of Yasha Levine. He's a... Uh, He's a Russian uh, American um, journalist. Uh, when when uh, uh, Maidan happened, he wrote uh, a news. He wrote an article, or or he has a, he wrote an essay about how how this is you know this was uh, is meant the whole Maidan thing and overthrow is meant to bring in to draw in Russia, to draw in Russia into the into into the affairs of Ukraine, right? Because of the threat of, of, you know, of Ukraine becoming part of NATO. And then that means that NATO can station weapons and can station troops right there at the border of Ukraine, right? Before you must think about this, the Cuban Missile Crisis in reverse, right? You know, the, you know, the possibility of having Soviet troops in, in, in Cuba 90 miles away from, from the United States. You know, you saw back in 1962, the hysteria that, you know, that created, you know, there were plans to actually attack Cuba because of that, right? Uh, and, they, and they went through because Kennedy and, and Khrushchev sat down and then decided to de-escalate. Uh, but the Biden administration is, is not doing that. Biden administration is pushing forward uh, with it, right? Uh, so in 2014, uh, Yasha Levin talked about this, you know, this is what will happen if, you know, after Maidan, if NATO, go, if, if, if NATO absorbs uh, Ukraine, Russia is going to react. And pretty much the idea is to make Russia bleed in Ukraine. That was in 2014. Right. Uh, fast forward to uh, a week ago, Hillary Clinton was like she was interviewed like in, in, in ABC News, I believe it was. Right. And she was talking about this exact same scenario, <laughs> you know, you know, recently. Right. You know, 2022, that the intent is not to 
not to put NATO in the boots on the ground, not to push NATO, but to continue to support the Ukrainians, right, with weapons and training and stuff like that, uh, and create an Af it created like an Afghanistan scenario for the Russians, right? So in Ukraine, right? So what's the intention here? What what what's, what do you you know when you read on the line here? What is what are they talking? about? they're talking about as using Ukraine as a as a chess you know piece. You use Ukraine as collateral damage for this grand scheme game of pretty much degrading uh, you know Russian forces, degrading you know Russian economy, pretty much bringing it apart. Um, kind of the goal here is, you know, which is, has been happening, the strategy here is pretty much bait Russia into uh, an Afghanistan scenario, check, you know, that's what it seems like it's, it's turning into an Afghanistan scenario for them, right? Decouple you, the EU from the Russian economy, decouple, you know, sp split them apart, seems to be happening, the EU have reacted um, into pretty much totally canceling Russia, canceling Russian athletes, you know, Russian athletes are getting stripped of their, of their of titles and their prizes. And you've seen uh, there was one about a Russian Oprah singer that she was sent home, she was deported because she didn't denounce Putin and whatnot, and etc. Right? So you know, pretty much decouple the EU from Russia, right? Uh, isolate Russia. Uh, that was another strategy, you know, from the rest of the world, which is also questionable because before that, Russia was part of the BRIC nations. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of the BRIC nations, which is Brazil, um, Russia, India, uh, um, BRIC, India. Uh, what's the other one? China, China, and South and South Africa. None of the BRIC, none of the BRIC nations that condemned has condemned the uh, the Russian incursion. If you notice, right? Brazil hasn't, India hasn't, China hasn't. You know, South you know South Africa hasn't either, right? Neither has Brazil. Neither has uh, not Brazil, Argentina. Neither has Mexico, uh, nor Cuba, nor Venezuela, nor Nicaragua, right? And pretty much a lot of countries in Africa hasn't either. Um, so you know, so. So what we're seeing here about Russia being totally isolated is mostly uh, the West is isolating Russia, right? Not the whole world entirely. And the last strategy is to regime change. That's ultimately the ultimate goal is to regime change and put somebody more palatable in Russian government to the West, you know, probably a Yeltsin-like, you know, uh, to the West, you know, where, you know, where it's more, you know, where it's more palatable, like, you know, it's another word from it. Um, uh, so yeah there you go <laughs> the problem is though like who is that person like uh, Navalny maybe like he's probably the only one but a lot of your a lot of Russians don't necessarily like him because he's not like for democracy really he's a charlatan <laughs> yeah he's, he's charlatan. okay so a lot of the Russian people are like you know he would be more palatable to our leaders but the Russians wouldn't really be palatable wouldn't like him and also, like when you're looking down the, you know, third or fourth or fifth order of effect, um, like who's most likely to take to step in that power vacuum? And it's going to be the military <laughs> and or like even these oligarchs, like they. I don't know, not, none of them have the like can command the same kind of presence as him. So if we did or somebody did end up taking him out it would be like, it could potentially be worse than what we're facing right now. Because you right know, now, well, right now Putin has really specific objectives and he's making all these calculations based on what the reactions are, right? So he's like, okay, I, you know, he has the 600 billion in reserve, half of that is gone. So he's like, all right, like, what am I going to do next? You know, and then if like, he's, he's reacting more as the plan changes 
And but I mean, I knew he he fired the guy that was in charge of the operation because it wasn't moving fast enough, and because of course they gave Rosie pictures to uh, him about how successful this is going to be. So it's it's going to be interesting to see in the next couple of weeks, like how um, him and the military leadership react to, like you said, like creating it in an Afghanistan situation. Are they? Is there going to be a point where they? like realize that it's not worth it i don't know i don't know if that's gonna happen or not because he wants what he wants out of it. he wants the resources and he's gonna do whatever he can i just saw this morning that he had he had already committed about 75 percent of their total forces now it's like closer to almost 100 because he wants things to move along faster but i don't know we'll just we'll have to see what what happens so you got to see, you also see it from a, a tactical uh, position as well. Uh, but before that, right, the, you know, what's the, one of the most popular parties, you know, because uh, Putin's party is United Russia, right? That's a, that's a ruling party, United Russia. But you know, which is uh, one of the pop, one of the most popular party, if it's not the second most popular party in, in Russia, it's a Russian communist party. <laughs> that's the most, that's the most popular party, right? So that tells you a lot. And the reason you don't hear about it here, because why? Because it doesn't fit the narrative. It doesn't fit the narrative, you know. So the narrative here is so the policymakers here is not going to support the Russian Communist Party to overthrow the United Russian Party. So they'll pick somebody like Navalny, which is pretty much a nobody, a Yahoo, you know, a, a, a charlatan, you know, which makes good aesthetic, right? But what is his politics? He has none. He moves with he moves with the wind. He moves the wind, and he's very ultra right wing as well, you know, uh, very anti-immigrant and, and you know, famous, you know, uh, what do you call that, uh, misogynist and whatnot. But for the American ruling class, you know, the objective here is to overthrow the current government in Russia and have and replace it with a more powerful Russia, like Yeltsin. Um, do you re- I don't know if you guys remember Yeltsin, right? Yeltsin was <laughs> Yeltsin was a buffoon, a fool, right? He he came to the United States in one of those night shows and was just dancing. You know, he he died of alcoholism, right? He wasn't a serious person, right? Um, but what Yeltsin did was pretty much open the door for for structural for uh, economic structural um uh um what i call it the uh pretty much the free market liberal cap you know liberalism that's what he did right structural adjustment that's what that's what i'm that's what i'm talking about so yeltsin was the first president of of russia after the the soviet union the dissolution of the soviet union uh, uh nikolai gorshav was the last premier of the soviet union and, and yeltsin was a military man uh, he became the, the the first president of of Russia, the Russian Federation, um, and pretty much he opened the door for neoliberal capitalism in 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 Russia. Right? Um, see, seen all these all these um, technocrats came in from from the West, from Europe, from the United States, from England. You know, pretty much to restructure the whole your the whole Russian economy. That's how that was the birth of the oligarchs. Because what they did is they sold all state assets, all public assets, they sold it, they privatized everything, right? So the Russian worker overnight lost his pension overnight, <laughs> lost his health care overnight, you know, uh many went homeless overnight, you know, uh, you know, uh were jobless overnight, you know, and that happened in the 90s. That was a terrible night. That was very traumatic for the Russian people in the 90s, right? That's the Cuban call it a special period. That was the that, the that was the Russian special period, right? Uh, it was very chaotic. Um, in the midterm election of Yeltsin, when he was running for president, you know, for for re for re reelection, 
the most powerful party that was challenging was the Russian Communist Party, was Russian, was, was challenging Yeltsin. And the Americans sent, sent um, put a tons of money and sent, uh, um, you know, a lot of advisors and, and a campaign managers to help um, Yeltsin win the election because they, they're trying to block the Communist Party from coming back into power, you know. Uh, and Vladimir Putin was was under the Yeltsin's government, and then when Yeltsin pretty much resigned, Vladimir Putin became uh, the president in 1999. And then uh, he's had he's on his second term. He had a term in between. He had a break in between. He came back again. Uh, but yeah, so that all that to say is that that uh, uh, who, what would be the most palatable president for for the West? For the most palatable president for the West. In Russia, Russia is a big country. Russia has a lot of resources. I mean, has a lot of platinum, aluminum. Has you know, as the world's largest uh, producer of wheat, um, you know, a lot of oil and everything. What will be more palatable uh, present for for uh, um, for the West? You know, obviously somebody not like Putin, right? Somebody more like Yeltsin. You know, somebody who pretty much uh, could be could be tamed and subordinated. You know, and that's and that's and that's the, that's the thing right here because we have in Russia, and same as in Ukraine, a lot of Eastern European countries, we have this this thing that you know in, in international relations, you know, so let's call it torn countries, right? They're torn identity. You guys mentioned it earlier about the identity of the people in Ukraine, right? These are torn countries, right? They have different things. So their identities, there are people that identify with the West more, like Yeltsin and Gorbachev. You know, they identify there with the Atlantis. Uh, people in, in, in the Soviet Union and Russia, they identify with the West, and they're more that look inward. They're more nationalist and more, you know, identified inward, right? So you have that conflict there. Um, you know, you have that conflict in these countries, in these Eastern European countries and, and, and Eurasian countries. So, yeah, so, so all that to say is, you know, what would be the most powerful, you know, any government who actually stands up for, for you know, who actually represent a strong government in Russia will not be palatable for the West, you know, and, that, and that's and that's that's a that's a fact. That's a fact that you know you want you want a government that is more dominable, you know, government that is more appeasing, you know, and that's that's a conflict that we have there. So I wanted to um, I wanted to wrap up talking about about how how we're how we're interpreting the all the events that are happening and and. Are are we you, something you see among some anti-war leftists is that an affinity for whoever is the non-U.S. power that it, it it's really easy to say you know we want Russia to be to do what it's doing or that R Russia is I mean we we understand why Russia is reacting this way but we don't agree that that's that that should be the course that he takes there's no you know it, and I think it's you know it, it it comes down to a real a real simpleton's argument you know going back to the the war on terror us versus them you know if you're not on our side you're on their side um, you know it's re real easy for people to demonize Putin and even still call him a communist despite the fact that he's much closer to a I don't know about a far right American Republican but he's definitely Republican in that way. Um, and that it's really important that if you consider yourself anti-war, that you call out imperialism wherever you see it or whatever side or appearance that it takes. Um, 
you know, is it, I, I, I know for me personally, I, right now I'm, I have a, a, a lot of sympathy for the Ukrainian people. I also have a lot of sympathy for the Russian people. Um, their economy has been, been decimated in the last few weeks. And it's, as, as with most sanctions, they don't really affect the people on the top. There are so many ways that they can insulate themselves. It mainly trickles down to the ordinary person. Um, and we know that as the West does get involved more, that you know, Ukraine or even Russia eventually may end up having to go through the, the same process we've seen other countries go through during regime change, forced to, to get rid of people's pensions, to uh, destroy workers' rights, to crack down politically on opposition parties. So um, my, my, my question to you guys is how, um, how best do you think that we accomplish this? How do we, make, we help people understand that even if they understand a side that they don't necessarily agree uh, with the choices that that side that side is making, and it doesn't make us. And I know most of the listeners already probably understand this, but you know, it doesn't make us Putin puppets. It doesn't make us Assad apologists. It doesn't make us traitors or 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 betrayers of our of our of our country. Because this is the real reality. This is the real nuance of the situation. And if we're not prepared to go through it and understand it, then we might as well be imperialists for using our ignorance just to drive forward. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I'm feeling really bad for the, the, like most of the Russian soldiers are conscripts too. So, and they don't have any fucking idea of like what the Ukrainian people think about because they're not being told how the Ukrainian people are feeling. So there's all these stories of like the Russian soldiers asking people for directions and asking them for food because they didn't get enough food because logistically like Russia has not prepared for this war and thought they could just go in and like blow through everything as fast as possible. And my brother is in Turkey and he has two friends that are in Ukraine right now, one in Odessa and one in Kiev. And it's just like, um, yeah, I mean, why would you like we nobody should be who is a leftist, I feel like, should be a fan of wars of aggression. And this clearly is that. Like he came in unprovoked to do what he wanted to do. And we like you can sit there and like we need to understand the history as I feel like we've done a good job of and but still be able to understand like Democracy is about letting what people do ha- want to happen. Like the majority of people want to be safe and they want to be secure and they want to be able to live their lives in peace. And so anybody who is not for that is not really like, I don't, I don't know how they could consider themselves a leftist if you're not for those basic things. Yeah. Uh, Saul said that, uh, uh that we need to, you know, I know that at the moment, I know that we're, you know, we're stoked to weaponize our emotions, they're weaponizing our, our, our compassion. Um, I just saw it in, I just saw it in the news uh, a few days ago, uh, one of the front page, you know, one of the mainstream papers saying this hasn't happened, a European country hasn't been uh, attacked since the Second World War, something, you know, this is, you know, I forgot the, the exact terms that they used, uh, but that's not true. That's not true because 
I recall Yugoslavia, and I was deployed Yugoslavia, and Yugoslavia does not exist anymore because it was viciously attacked. It was viciously attacked by NATO. It was bombarded uh, with 28,000 bombs, right? Uh, Serbia was bombarded for 78 days straight. Uh, and, and it broke Yugoslavia, it broke it, it broke it into seven countries. And I said, seven little republics now, right? Uh, so that was, that's not true, you know? So there's a lot of disinformation out there, right? It's a lot of disinformation that, that's created to, to, um, to, to invoke our emotions, you know? Uh, there was a Time magazine, and going back to Yugoslavia, there was a Time magazine, uh, there was an image that was, that was beamed into the American embassy in Moscow with a Time magazine cover page of when, when uh, uh, Yugoslavia was bombed, when Serbia was bombed, right? And it was beamed into the, into the, into the uh, embassy in Moscow. Uh, about, there was another one saying, that this is the largest refugee, uh, you know, incident, you know, 2 million refugees, the largest ever since the Second World War. That's not true either. You know, there was a, <laughs> there was a Brown study, there's a Brown University study uh, uh, I uh, think about two or three years ago, they said that the wars in Syria, the wars in Afghanistan, the wars in, Afga in, in, in Iraq had produced about 60 million, 60, yeah, 60 million people, 60 million people moving around, you know, uh, you know, displaced, internally displaced, or have, have had to leave their country because of these wars, right? So, yeah, so there's a lot of hype, you know, there's a lot of things to attack your emotion. One of the things that that, that is that for me, at least in my lifestyle, you know, a lifetime seeing all these conflicts since the Panama invasion, which I was living as a child inside the military base, to the day, right, to the Gulf War, to the day, this conflict has elicited more emotions, more reaction, faster and quicker, right, than any other conflicts be before that. You know, you gotta ask yourself why. You know, what's you know what is what's going on here? Like Noam Chomsky says, you know, manufacture consent, right? You know, by creating this outrage, you manufacture the consent to have your your you know your your side to to do something just like the people this protest you, know, you gotta do something you gotta do something uh, i'll say that the correct uh approach to this right is for us for anti-war people you know leftist people you know uh, is to develop an anti-imperialist attitude right or anti-imperialist analysis just like henry's been saying uh, we should call for de-escalation not escalation de-escalation and and bring people to this to the table you know that's a resolved conflict bring people to the table you mentioned kagan that that uh turkey that you're you have a brother-in-law or brother in turkey right turkey is a nato country and turkey is another nato country that is not actually sanctioning russia it's not uh that is not uh condemning russia right but well, turkey to the montreux convention where you know which is the convention about them not letting the warships through. So exactly. they, they're hedging their bets. You know, they they still rely on Russia for some things, but they're not letting them through the strait. So right. like they're still kind of they're doing both. At the same time, they they uh they they've armed the uh, the Ukrainians as well, particularly with those drones. The yeah, Ukrainians yeah, those are using. drones. Um, yeah. So the thing is that Turkey recently, I think today, actually offered to broker broker a, a uh, you know peace talks right um belarus uh, has been the site for peace talks. i think today also was the third time that the russian delegation and the ukraine delegation uh met 
Mm -hmm. uh, China also offered to, to be a broker of peace and everything like that. But we got to be real right here. We got to ask ourselves, right, is the Ukraine dele delegation independent? That's another thing. Are they independent? Because if we take it back to Venezuela, for example, with the whole Venez with the Venezuelan opposition, the Venezuelan government, they met like three times. And all three times they've had, you know, the opposition broke the talks because they were broke they, when they were this close to coming into a concession, right? They pulled away. Why? Because the 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 opposition in Venezuela wasn't independent. You know, they relied on, on U.S. funds and whatnot. So, is the opposition is the 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 uh, the, Ura the uh, Ukrainian delegation independent? Who are who are moving them? You know, that's what you got to ask, right? Uh, but yeah. So, as leftists, we should ask for de-escalation. We should never encourage, or we should never call for a NATO intervention, or we should never call for sanctions. Uh, we should have an independent uh, uh, peace movement, you know, away from, you know, from the, from all these, you know, the Democrats or whoever, or these, you know, uh, attached to all these, empty, you know, to the non-government organizations and whatnot. And yeah, you know, and, and that's the thing, you know, we should, uh, we should call for, you know, we should call for peace. That's, that's what we should call for, you know. Well, I think that's, uh, I think that's a good place for us to, uh, to wrap it up for today. Um Giovanni, thank you so much for coming and joining Kay and myself and, and, and talking about this. And uh, um, I hope that we've, you know, um, given the, the immense space in the media right now for um, U.S. driven narratives about Ukraine. I hope that this episode is a, a little bit of light in that in that darkness. And um, I know there's been a few people on Twitter that have kind of wondered, are, you know, what are we thinking about this and that? And um now we'll actually have some some stuff to discuss in in that way. But um, again, I hope it's if you been want to support illuminating. Something. Go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to mention there's some really good ways to support people on the ground right now. Oh hell yeah, um, go man. One uh, there's a bunch of different inter international rescue organizations. There's a bunch of different um, that I just gave some money to. Uh, and then something that I found out that has been kind of cool is people are use um, do Airbnbs for people in Ukraine where they are like paying for people to stay there, but they're not obviously staying there. It's just a quick way to get people money. Also on Etsy, uh, same thing. Like if you want to buy something from somebody, like do it because that is the quickest way for them to get the money in their hands, like right away. So like, just look up, like just look the things up by location. And um, especially with Airbnbs, I saw somebody was able to do like five different ones. That was like a hundred bucks. So, like, as an American, it's not like a whole lot of money for some people. So, yeah, yeah. you know, just simple ways to give people money. It's like a we can circumvent, like, create new ways of mutual aid to help the people that need it the most. Also, I'd like to also add um, to people that are tracking, you mentioned Twitter, the people are tracking what's going on on the ground. Everything. I know it's kind of hard in you know, the fog of war. It's kind of hard. We're getting all kinds of information. It's kind of hard to see actually what's going on on the ground. But this is this is, America, this is an American that lives, has been living in Ukraine since, probably since about 2012. He has his family there. His name is Patrick Lancaster, right? And he's been, I don't know if you ever heard of him, right? He's been uh, reporting you know, since 2014, since Maidan, he's been reporting of, of events happening in Ukraine, you know, through his Twitter and so forth. You can find him on YouTube as well. Uh, but he's re he's been reported from the Dumbas, from the Dumbas area. That's where he lives in the Dumbas. And you guys, and for all for those who don't know who the Dumbas area is, which is um, uh, the countries uh, of, uh, uh, what is it, Lugansk? Lugansk? Luhansk and Donetsk. Yeah, the, Luhansk, the separatist right. region. The separatist region, exactly right. And for this last 
eight years before the Russian incursion, right? They've been actually under attack by Western, by Western Ukraine, which didn't make the media here. Uh, so yeah, so he's been reported from there. So I encourage you guys to, you know, to to see that side of the story, because for the most part, the the side the Ukraine story. The, the Ukraine that has most access to our media are the 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 Western Ukrainians, the anti-Russian Ukrainians, but you don't hear from the ethnic Russians, uh, Ukrainians there, uh, what they have to say about it. So I encourage you guys to uh, go into you into Twitter, um, YouTube, and follow uh, Patrick Lancaster. All right, thanks guys for uh, for that info. That's uh, that's great. Um, so uh, like I was saying, Giovanni, thank you for joining us, man. Always a treat to have you for any conversation, um, and uh, especially for the little bit of the background of what we're dealing with here. Um, I didn't know that you were that as a kid that you um, lived near a base when Panama was invaded. We'll have to uh, we'll have to chat about that sometime. That's uh, that's interesting. Um, all right, folks, thank you for uh, for joining us today on Fortress on a Hill, and uh, we'll be back again soon. Take care. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify, you name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron patreon.com and if you're not into giving us a monthly payment think about giving us a couple bucks on paypal the link is in the show notes skepticism is one's best armor never forget it you good people and listen to my song i hope you'll pay attention i will not